there are right. definitely times I had to restrain myself because there were things that I wanted to change mm -hmm. that were big things. And it was too late in the year to do that. Like you can't change that now. You can't change somebody's sort of attitude. Like that's the way yeah. they are. They're wired that way. We're not going to make a big change in attitude right now. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, you know, we're not going to make a big change in strokes generally. You know, there's little things we can do, but, but uh, it's all, it was almost all focused on building on their strengths. Welcome to the Social Kick Podcast. I'm Brian Lundquist. We got a smaller crew, but a quality crew today. Luke Paddington and my college coach, David Marsh. Actually, not just college coach, but also you coached me after a couple of years of pro swimming and, and up in Charlotte. So, David, thanks uh, coming off of the high of a, of a big win and a reunion for you. But thanks for being on. Thank you. It was, it's a, it was a reunion and a reunion even emotionally to go back to an NCAA event. So it was, it was, there's a lot of levels of experience going on over the, uh, over the weekend and, and obviously doing it with Dave and doing it with a, with a team culture like Cal. It was, it was so much. And, and I enjoyed your, the, the, the podcast you did with the, with the three, three different swimmers from the, 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 the contending teams. Good job on that. That's, that's, that's going to be a classic. I mean, coaches will want to show that to their athletes. Uh, early in the season now to understand more than that dynamic of what's going mm -hmm. on because there's some great great insight into that three uh three well-spoken guys thanks for listening to it yeah um so i there was something that durden said in the press conference when i asked him about your presence on deck and i just wanted to get your insight on it because what he mentioned was and keeps you know speaking directly to me because i asked the question but saying hey you know, Brian, you know, because the guy knows how to win championships. He's won this meet so many times, but especially this time of year, he sees things. And I'm curious if you know what he meant by that. And if you do, then can you speak to what it is that is uh, so magical about the touch you have and that what you see this time of year, kind of championship season, sort of after Christmas training? Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like that is, a, uh, a, a, has been a evolving, had been an evolving strength of mine through my college career where I could anticipate things, uh, before they would happen. So I think one of the, one of the key things that I experienced was that, was that, uh, uh, you know, the, the nuances of detail, uh, if, if you know what I mean. So it, it has to do with, with, you know, team uniforming. It has to do with logistics of when you travel. It has to do with when you arrive. It has to do with the dynamic of how you utilize your fans and your and your and your support staff. It has to do so. It's all these little nuances that end up playing into getting the athletes to be where they need to be at the right time. And and I think like you explained in your opener, I didn't. I don't plan to think the way I think. I mean, I didn't plan to tell you to nail the start. I was just trying to figure out a way to get you to execute in the moment. And, the, and it happens to be that when you're 18, 19, 20 years old and you're at the NCAA championships, it's the biggest moment of your life in most cases. I mean, so it's the, in your swimming career, which you, most people have done their whole life, it's their biggest moment at that moment. And so how do you sort of create an environment where, uh, where the athletes can flourish? And that's, that's sort of what I see. And it's, it's funny because, Brett Hawk sent me a picture. I sent him a picture one time. It was, it was Richard Quick and me and him. I think it was, I think it was seven when Richard was on the deck with us at that time because yeah. he was transitioning to be head coach. Mm -hmm. And I'm like making a really like intense face like this. And he, the two of them are completely calm. 
And uh, and I said to, I said to Brett, well, well, this is a terrible picture of me. I said, what do you what was what was what was happening at this moment? Because he says, like, once again, you were seeing things we didn't see. <laughs> so so I don't know what that was, but I I I, uh, I do being back in NCAs and occasionally in the ISL, there'd be there'd be moments where um, where you, you would you would feel those things and be able to. Sometimes you can do something about it. Sometimes you can't, but. Uh, but it, it has to do with all the details. The fortunate thing for Dave is he's already a very detailed guy, so mm-hmm. it wasn't hard to help him. What I could help, help was able to help him with was more uh, being another uh, experienced set of eyes watching the, the athletes that he coached all year, and I had a fresh fresh eyes on and saying, "Is this are this, is this okay that this is going on?" In some cases, he goes, "Wow, I didn't you know sort of didn't even realize that mm-hmm. that was where they were." And so we we did a few things that, to try to shake things up and, and keep things challenged. And, and we at some point we decided we're just going to go for it. We're going to try things. And I think part of trying things was, was, you know, for the first three or four days when I went up to Berkeley, I was checking with him every time I wanted to adjust a stroke or adjust a turn. And then about four or five days into it, he said, David, just do it. Just do it. Like, don't need to ask me. You don't need to copy me on the video back to the athlete. Just do it. Like, so it was like, you know, I knew he trusted me. But at that point, you know, I was able to sort of figure out what I could do to help them get better in, you know, seven weeks. And in some cases, only three weeks before the conference meet. But but uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I, I sort of my brain operates really well when it's on overload. Uh, and it and it likes chaos, and and I and I I sense calmness during chaos. I think it's my ADD that's just like you know when I fire caffeine down in the morning to to get it where it needs to be. Uh, I'm at my best, I think, when there's a lot of things going on. Hmm. I was gonna say, it, it, don't underestimate how 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 delicate the situation had to be for you to have succeeded so well in such short space of time. You're talking about fifth year seniors who had never met you, maybe some of them. Yeah, uh, and, and you are coming into a program. You've had to have the trust and the belief mutually in the communication and your experience and know how far to push, when to push, when not to push, what to add, because you can really do a lot of damage as well at that point in the season. So it, it's a very delicate situation, and kudos to it shows the trust and the and between the two of you more than anything, and your experience and Dave's experience. So, well, and, and some restraint. I mean, I, there are right. definitely times I had to restrain myself because there were things that I wanted to change mm-hmm. that were big things. And it was too late in the year to do that. Like, you can't change that now. You can't change somebody's sort of attitude. Like, that's the way yeah. they are. They're wired that way. We're not going to make a big change in attitude right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, you know, we're not going to make a big change in strokes generally. You know, there's little things we can do, but but uh, it's all, it was almost all focused on building on their strengths. I mean, like Daniel Carr, for example, I, you know, I sort of played with his breakout and backstroke to try to get him to do a two-handed breakout rather than just a one. He did a one, then two, instead of the double breakout. And that's something we played with. So mm-hmm. there's athletes that, that I, I might take one thing like that, a lot of turn work. You know, when I first got to Berkeley, I assumed we'd be swimming in flat wall pads like we always have at Georgia Tech. So I actually brought a flat wall pad from San Diego up to Berkeley. They didn't have one, and I put it in. I'm like, you guys got to learn how to turn this thing because this is way different than turning on a, on a gutter yeah. wall. Big and uh, as it turned out, the women's meet, they changed it to lower the gutters for the first time ever at Georgia Tech, which, by the way, is why you saw partly why you saw such fast times, uh, because those the, the, the gutters, the, the pads weren't were down at the gutter level. So waves are blowing through. They weren't getting stuck. at They weren't bouncing back off the wall. 
Right. I remember that, but I did not notice that at NCs. Yeah. Well, okay. There, there's your example of things I noticed that yeah. others may not notice. I mean, literally, I was before the meet. I was looking at the, the there's a there's a gray line, a gray you know line that looks like a, a turning lane, at it looks like about 15 meters. Yeah. And I walked over and I and it's and they have a laser camera right now, 15 meters, and and I see this line is about lined up with 15 meters, and I'm walking around going. This doesn't look right on 50 meters. This is weird. What is this? What is this thing here for? It's not. It's not for a 15 meter mark, because there's not a mark the other way. There's not a mark going into the wall the other way. So this is. This can't be that. I'm not sure why this is here. It might be if the pool's set up for 25 meters in the middle of the pool or something. But anyway, that, so I had to. I went all the way up to the the highest person at the facility, and finally they didn't even know when I asked. When I asked, "What's this line for?" They're like, oh, "We don't know. We don't know." I said, "Is it a 15 meter line?" We don't know. I'm like. Well, we need to know that because, you know, these guys are going to come if they're going to use it, they're going to come up on that line. And it was about 15 meters. And I think about three inches. It was a little bit beyond 15 meters. Well, and I'm, and I'm like, uh, I, need, I need to know this if this is here. And so I had to go up to literally nobody had asked the question, the entire women's or men's to that point. Wow. And, and I'm like, uh, we need to know this because this I think everybody assumed that gray line was 15 meters. Uh, I'm guessing, and we did use it. We just told people, look, it's, it's a little bit beyond 15 meters, but you can use it as a mark to come up, make sure you're up. Yeah. Hey, do you think college coaches should have like the NFL challenge, uh, flag in their sock? If they see somebody go past 15, throw, throw a flag in the pool. I think honestly, Brian, anything we do to make our sport more interesting would be a good thing. I think, uh, honestly, if you can put on boxing gloves and or do rock, paper, scissors when there's ties. I don't know. what I, I mean, I, honestly, we, we need to do more things, you know, having done the ISL for three years and seeing what is possible to bring a little bit more life to our sport, watching the Formula One show, getting to know the athletes and seeing the interesting storylines. And that's a pretty boring sport, too, right? They just turn. They don't they don't really you know, they turn and they wreck, you know, we don't wreck as much, but you know, we turn, we turn a different way, but we got to figure out ways to make our sport more interesting. Well, let's well, talk about you... that. Good. Uh, Go ahead. I, I, I have, I've been lucky to see, to be on at the Rio Olympic games, at the Sydney Olympic games, Sydney at the time had the largest attendance, 20,000 people in the audience. Rio was exciting when the Brazilian swam, you know, you're there when Tiago was swimming. I was lucky. To, I watched ISL on TV and it was exciting, but it was all, NCs was my first meet as a spectator. Oh, well. And it was everything I hoped it would be and more. It was shattering. It was, I, I don't think you need to be a swim fan to feel what you felt there. Um, they give you time to enjoy the moments. You, you, you heard the passion in the spectators, not even, not just the swimmers. You saw the coaches' reactions that were so genuine, more than the ISL. And I really do think the NCAAs is, underrated it, it's known of obviously by american swimming well and, and some some people in europe have an idea but we need to take this meet to somewhere else um and 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 elements of the isl for sure elements of what the olympics can bring for sure but this is it do we add world records to yards you know because we, we didn't have world records in short course meters for the longest while or do we call them world best at least you know, there's so much we can do. And, they, and talk to me about that. What do you think is missing after being away for 15 years, spending three years in the ISL, <laughs> hitting a few Olympic games, being a swimmer and a coach in all these big meets? What's what's your dream? Well, I think the biggest thing is is we've got to 
somehow engage the non-swimming audience of the world, the sports person, the sports person, mm-hmm. because obviously we're getting them during the Olympics. Somehow, somehow or another, with our storylines, with our uh, performances, with the understanding of what our Olympic sport is, we're, we're getting that. But what we're not doing is getting them outside the Olympic Games, not, not in any measure compared to what we get at the Olympics. Uh, that's because partly because of several things. But, you know, it, when it comes to the NCAA, I think the number one by far biggest thing is the date of it. Yeah. Now, if you're coming up with an NCAA sport and you want to make sure it gets no coverage and gets overshadowed by something, what are the what are the two things you wouldn't put it on top of? You know, the national championship football game. Right. Probably not. And you wouldn't put it during the final you know, basketball, you know, the, the sweet 16, eight selection, four sex. You don't put anything on those weekends that you want to draw any attention because the attention of the United States is taken. And it's taken by the exact format that we're offering in swimming. And that format being you perform at a certain level all year, you work on qualifications, and you finally get qualified, you combine as a team, and you walk into the NCAA championships as a, as a combined NCAA team with a team goal to accomplish that team goal for your institution. And it doesn't matter how you did in any meet before that at that point. At that point, you forget everything, just like they do in the basketball tournament. It doesn't matter how you did all year. All that matters is I made it into the final 64. Now I'm in the Sweet 16. Now I'm in the eight. And unfortunately, St. Peter's didn't make it all the way through. But sometimes it's a Cinderella. We won't have as many Cinderella's in swimming, but but doggone it, we get here and now we compete. Well, unfortunately, when you do that on the same weekend as NCAA events are going on in, in men's basketball and even women's basketball is getting great coverage right now, we're out. We're out. You know, I'm best buddies with Rowdy Gaines, and he's the best announcer of all these sports too. He's making the sport as interesting as he can. But when you're on ESP, ESPN three, when you're streaming. Uh, you know, on uh, whatever the streaming thing is, you know, you're not getting an audience. And uh, and then you go into the interview and Brian Lundquist is asking the best questions. It's not NBC. It's not CBS. It's not it's not. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's, uh, you know, TMZ. Just get some people. Now, now I guess the week before the women's meet, there was a lot of stuff over the, 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 the Leah Thomas stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, typically and what we need to my my calling is after watching and then say, I mean, after 16 years of taking a break. And by the way, during those 16 years, honestly, as I coached professionals more and more, I didn't even watch the NCAAs. I didn't pay any attention to the NCAAs. I didn't even watch short course times anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of went away and I came back with the Berkeley team. And I got back, Luke, into, the, into exactly what you explained, that unique excitement that the NCAA has. These mm-hmm. 18 to 22-year-old guys that are just completely jacked for this one moment. It's the most important thing for most of them that's ever happened in their life at that minute, at that moment. And they're going in and they're, they're, they're a pack and they're going to compete together as, as a brotherhood. And to, to not capture that and show that to the world, show that at least to the United States audience. And it's, and it, and it's a storyline that everybody understands. You know, on the women's side, I'm sure it's, it's the same thing as well. The men's side this past week, it absolutely was palpable how much uh, I felt uh, being in the experience. And I probably would have felt it in the audience, but obviously being in the deck and being on one of the teams that was competing for the championship, I felt it a lot more. But uh, I just, 
And we have to move it to February, move it to January, move it to April, move it to May, move it to June. I don't care when, but it's got to move. Can't be on this weekend, guys. And coaches have to get over the, the, the tradition of it being on this weekend. The committee has to allow it to be placed on a place like women's softball, for example, who gets incredible coverage on ESPN, you know, week after week, game after game after game, shows the intimate details of the game. And, uh, and Luke, I hope what we can do, too, is, you know, get cameras, mic up the coaches, you know, they, they, you know get, get, get cameras in the team box areas, yeah. you know, like they do at the ISL. And, uh, and you'll get a lot. You might have to bleep out some things, but you're going to get a lot of exciting uh, moments. But that makes us care. First of all, that brings us on deck with you. But I also yeah. need to know the characters. Any story, you need to know the characters. Otherwise, I don't give a dang about the story. So I need to know these characters. I need to do some backstories on them. Let me know who they are. And then not only the stars. I, I don't yeah, need to absolutely. know about Kieran. Yeah. I need to know about that Cal guy who won um, um, consoles swimming out his mind lousa uh, that was his, that was a turning point momentum change but if that was explained by somebody you can say dude you know what you just did you just fired up hugo by what you just did there and that turned the tide for carl and won the championship in my opinion that was a big turn awesome kind of I, so i love that you picked out that moment because I, right. I i work with j-lo a lot and uh and the only thing that guy was missing is confidence man i there's one moment where i saw this is one of those guys i saw at practice one day and i and like and like why aren't you one of the best members in the world? Like I said, why aren't you one of the best members in the world? Uh, like, I don't understand because you're, first of all, you have four beautiful strokes. Yeah. You train your ass off yeah. and you're six foot eight or whatever, six foot seven. You're a giant. Like we don't have this. Like what? And, 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 and I just said, come on. And the thing was about his, his backstory is he didn't race last year. So he is a great swimmer and he was a great recruit and all that kind of stuff. But Still, you're right. I love that you picked that up, Luke, because that was a lot of momentum when he popped that and did that. I mean, you know, Liam Bell from Atlanta, Georgia, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, just just transferring in from Alabama and going nuts in NCAs after, you know, having a season of not knowing where he's going to be, not where he's going to be, and he does 22-7 on the medley, 50.5. You know, then he wins consoles in a 200 breast. I mean, these are the stories that are super interesting. And celebrate amazing swims in a way that we understand. We know what Luke Orlando did in that hundred buck. A, how he did it, and B, what he did. But that's us. Nobody's. We are watching it already. Explain that this is the fastest that any human has ever swam four laps in a pool like this. Yeah, yeah. It's they nuts. Explain that. It's, it's as well, simple as that. You also got to show that underwater. You got to go back and review that. Say, here's what happened here. You know, and and uh, and they don't have the technology there mm -hmm. to do that. But we don't have the attention of the world. And the problem, the problem with this is not just for, uh, for for our sports getting support and not being dropped because that's part of the factor here. Is that is that we're getting dropped because there's not that much interest. You know, there, there's there's what we need to have is the ability to have athletic directors care. When do they care? They care when more people are letting them know they care. And uh, whether that be alumni, friends, fans, people in the neighborhood, you know, those are things that, that, that happen. You know, I know when I was building the thing at Auburn, you know, we, I spent a lot of time sending notes out to deans of school, out to social organizations on campus. I'd send the swimmers out to fraternities and sororities to talk about our sport. You know, we would, we did our all our own promoting early in the early days and it was, Part of just really getting people to care so ultimately hopefully the ad would care the board of trustees would care and eventually they did care 
Dave, I want to take it back. They call me a historian on the show. They call me, they're like, somehow passwords is about how old I am. Um, I want to go back to you as a swimmer because I think it has, I, I'm interested to see how it affected you as a coach and what lessons you learned as a swimmer. For those who don't know, and um, you were at Olympic trials, 100 backstroker, 200 IM, 200 back. You get DQ'd in the 200 IM. 200 back, finish low down. But in your 100 back, you qualified third for finals. You're in lane three next to our boy, big smiley, happy world champion, Bob Jackson. Right? So you're in lane three. Your third qualifier back then, top three make Olympics. You come six. Your time, if you swim a little bit faster, you would have made a team. Right? How did you deal with that? And and do you reflect on those moments in your coaching when you go see athletes going through the troubles, going through hard times at NCs who don't have the great swims? Talk about how those, those teaching moments helped you. I can't believe you just did that much research and figured that much out about me because I don't <laughs> remember. I literally don't remember. I did the tuna and trials. <laughs> yeah, I, was like, I got DQ'd, of course. I don't know what I was trying to do. Probably some weird breaststroke thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, I would say... Uh, 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 yes, there's no doubt that, that my swimming experience had a lot to do with how I coach now, how I view the sport now. But I was a really super late bloomer. I didn't swim until 10th grade. I wasn't a good swimmer until I went to any river for any river community college first, then, then went to Auburn. And at Auburn, I was the fifth backstroke when I arrived. But I did have a role model in Rowdy Games. Mm -hmm. And in 1980, when Jimmy Carter elected to boycott the Olympics, because the Russians were misbehaving. This isn't the first time the Russians have been misbehaving. They're misbehaving back then too. Uh, it shouldn't shock anybody. Uh, the the uh, uh, the team at a moment in uh, Rowdy would know the day, but it was sometime in late April or early May when we were told that there would be no, we would not be going to Olympic Games one way or the other. Reality was my big passion to make the Olympic team at that moment slowed down. It's almost, almost to a stop, you know, mm -hmm. so I can't tell you, I mean, a Luca qualifying third and then getting six would normally probably be traumatic and you want to make sure no mistake ever happens again. I can't say that happened in this case because my biggest, almost my whole team's biggest concern immediately became Rowdy. I mean, Rowdy yeah. was going to win five gold medals yeah. if he swam slow. You know, he could have swum a slow 100 and 200 and won it and been on yeah. three relays. He was going to win. He was going to be the golden boy of the 80 Olympics, 100% for sure. It was done. He was so amazing at that moment in time. And so I think that's where sort of my uh, uh, experience of that 1980 window happened. Uh, I, in the other hand, was swimming for Tim Shedd, Tim Shedd that summer. I was actually lifeguarding and only training once a day. So I actually was, you know, farting around eating hamburgers after practice. I wasn't super serious, but I'd done a lot of work with, you know, with Jim Montrell and Richard Quick over the years. So I had a lot of background. You know, back that back those days, we used to do a lot of background work. If you think you do aerobic work now, no, we we did a lot of did a lot of sets of you know eight four hundreds and things like that 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 gave us a lot of background. So I, I was living on a lot of background. So when I went to trials and I did go that. 57.3, which ended up being six in the world that year. Right. Uh, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, but I was also in sort of semi-retirement mode. But mm. let me let me go back to your what your question is really, yeah. which is taking your swimming experiences and moving it to the next thing. So for me, my experiences were how I experienced the sport. How I experienced the sport was life-changing. I mean, I it, it's where I found my 
mm-hmm. personal confidence. It's where I found a brotherhood of friends that I have to this day. My best friends are my Auburn buddies that I swam with. You know, I, I it's it's where I found my identity as a as a as a person. Is you know, I, I look, I wasn't good at a lot of things. Pretty good swimmer. And then as soon as I became a coach, I'm going to be a great coach, not a, not an average coach. I'm going to be a great coach. So Richard Quick took me around to the best coaches in the world and says, pay attention to this, pay attention to that, pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he helped me evolve quickly. And so at 30 years old, when I took over the Auburn program, I was probably way more prepared than most people at 30 years old to do that kind of thing. And I had the passion and drive. So, uh, uh, so yeah, no doubt that, uh, uh, that, that my process of coaching – I've enjoyed more than my process of swimming because I feel like my skill set and what I, how I can impact has a greater and more profound uh, effect than it did as my one person swimming, you know, up and down the pool. I mean, it, that was great days, but I love coaching way more. I, I, I feel the same as you. I used to enjoy seeing my, co- my colleagues, the co- comment you made about Rowdy and your concern for Rowdy being your primary concern in 1980 and not your trials is so, uh, you know, why are you into coaching? I mean, you, you, of course you enjoyed winning, but you enjoyed making others succeed in life 10 times, tenfold. So that's no expensive. Thank you. Yeah, no doubt. I, I, and that's what's so fun, honestly, about the Cal experience when I was there with Cal, because I do think there's some guys like J-Lo and Marco and, uh, and, and, and Bjorn even that, that, that I felt like, you know, I could give some of my, sort of attention to and just reinforcement that like, dude, you're really good. Like really good. (laughs) Believe in it. I'm like, I'm like, sometimes I use this. I said, look, I'm an expert. Believe me, (laughs) you know, believe me, you can trust me. I know what I'm talking about. I'm an expert. (laughs) So trust me, you're good. (laughs) So go. Oh, we certainly got a sense talking to Bjorn. They, they do trust you. Uh, They recognize you're an expert. So that's, I mean, you know, there's a resume of one thing, but, you know, uh, experiences with someone really cements that. So uh, those those guys trust you uh, in a really short period of time, which is pretty awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, Auburn's on my mind when I ask this, but it's not specifically about Auburn. But obviously, they're kind of in the phase of total rebuild. Um, and I think I think Ryan did a nice job in, in the first year. Um, I had some texts with him. But uh, you took over an Auburn program that was a total rebuild and had to go through a process. And I'm curious, just based on your experience and, and insights, obviously watching some other coaches do it as well. What do you think some of the key steps are for mm-hmm. any program, not specifically Auburn, um, to make strides in rebuilding especially if they already have the resources. And I'm talking about like getting funding or scholarships or pool or any of that, like assume that they have the resources, but you know, the program's in a downturn. What are some of the things that you think are really foundational to get it to take off again? I, I think, I think a coach, the head coach has to uh, have the confidence experience and ability to go into a, 10th grader now, I guess, I guess they're recruiting 10th graders now, 10th and 11th graders, and explain how they're going to help them win a medal at the Olympics or, you know, qualify for the U.S. Olympic team. That's, at the end of the day, that's the number one dream of most kids. So whether that be because I have three amazing assistant coaches, whether that be because I have a perfect facility for you, whether that be because I have Brian Karkoska as your strength and conditioning coach that'll take care of your physical development, 
whether that be because, you know, uh, uh, there's, you know, I have psychologists and we give you smoothies after practice or whatever, you know, whatever that, whatever you can convince, because you have to have the talent, Brian. Now you can, you, you get to build a program. You've got to have a percentage of super talent. I'm talking about, I'm talking about building top six to, to eight teams in the NCAA. I'm not talking about building the top 25. Right. Because that, that can be done with one athlete. Right. But to build to build that, to get in the to get in the, the team talk, you know, sort of like you've seen Bob do lately. And you you've seen you're seeing Mark Gangloff do it at UNC right now, you know, kind of slowly, but it's happening. Uh so the it, it takes that ability to create that 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 story, then deliver on the story. Because you don't deliver on the story, it's mm-hmm. gonna be a short-lived story. Then it's all just blah blah talk and it's all Instagram posts and mm-hmm. you know that kind of stuff. But if you uh, if you're delivering on it and people are improving and the environment's right. And uh, then I think there's a story. I mean, I think part of the story I've tried to emphasize to Dave, since I've been there is Dave, you, you've got to explain to people that, you know, as you're training people for NCAAs, you're also training them for long course. Cause I was shocked when he was swimming two times per week, long course during taper. I'm like, I'm thinking I wouldn't do that personally, but like I was so impressed that he was. And uh, yeah, just part of his philosophy. It's like, no, that's what we do. We stretch out the strokes that way. We relax them a little bit. And uh, and we're and we're also getting ready for long course, so there's not a big transition. We hit training in the spring, mm-hmm. and so it's uh, uh, you know, and I, I said, well, that's a recruiting line. I mean, the people need to know that happens because that doesn't happen most places. I can assure you, not many teams are going long course during right. taper for NCAA's. Right. You know, so it's uh, I think those are things that you got to build. Behind that, you have to have uh, the, the understanding of how to build a culture, of course. And, you know, that gets talked about a lot nowadays in sports, where how, how important a culture is. And it is. And a culture means you have to have leadership and people that are, that are, that are the example. And you, you interviewed Bjorn, and he's a young sophomore, but you can see he's a culture creator, right? Mm-hmm. He's a culture creator. He, does, he did care more about the team than about his own performances. That was, in fact, I was kind of ticked at that myself because I was like, damn it, you know, I want you to win, you know. And, uh, and he, he was like, it's okay. Next event, next event. I'm like, ah, <laughs> and, uh, so it was, a you know, I think the, the, the culture that you create, you got to have some people that in, and then you have to try to be selective as to who you let into your program because a few bad apples, maybe even one bad apple at times can really pull things down. Nowadays, that's one bad apple can go to the AD and get your job from you, you know? So it's, you know, you gotta be a little careful as to who you allow on your team uh, and, and sort of guard that front door, maybe more so now than ever. And how do you do that when you're evaluating 10th and 11th graders? I don't, I don't know how you do that. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, that's why I'm, people, like, people can ask me to get back in it. I'm like, you know, I love the whole thing, except I don't like that stuff. I don't like the, the compliance meetings. I don't like the, you know, the, 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 the there was a lot of blah, blah meetings that are, that don't have to do with, with with high performance or helping young people excel in life you know and that's those those are those are kind of not that interesting to me mm-hmm. but i think that one of the the things that that i would come back to in building a team would be that uh that, that it's the you know that that understanding of how that coach can uh to, can not sell the recruit but live and experience so they can see that your program is actually doing that and you can do that through Instagram. You can do that through TikTok. You can do that through podcasts like this. But at the end of the day, you know, you need to do it first of all and have a vision for that, and then deliver. And and you know, I just talked to Arthur Albiero this week, and you know, right after the meet, he's calling me right away. What did you do? What was going on there? What was the inside of that? That's how you keep learning. You know, that's what coaches. That's the responsibility of the head coaches to 
uh, being a constant learning process. I, you know, I know for me, when I'm, when I'm around Bob Grosseth and I'm around Peter Lynn, I'm around veterans like that out here in San Diego, uh, I'm just a sponge. I mean, I'm learning all the time. And mm-hmm. that's, a, that's my challenge to, to all, young, all, all, not just young coaches, but to coaches who want to excel. Hmm. David, how did you sell the NCAA system? You, you were well known for, for recruiting internationally. Uh, you came to my home pool in Trinidad for the weekend to recruit somebody from Trinidad. Um, but we've spoken to Aussies, Europeans, no interest coming here to swim here. Uh, what did you do to get the, the Brazilians, the French, the, you know, all the legends that you had? What did you do? I, t- I sold them on their Olympic dream. I, I told them, I told Pat Dye when I took the job at Auburn, I said, Coach Dye, my first thing I'm going to build here is a pro- program where we develop Olympians. And, he's, and you see, it's like, what? What about NCAAs and SECs? You know, those are the big things. I said, no, that always has to be first because that's, that's everybody's dream. So that's mm-hmm. what we're going to do. And at that time, when I took the job, we, I didn't have a, I didn't have 50 meter pool, not only in the city. I didn't have 50 meter pool in the county. You know, the, the closest 50 meter pool was over in Columbus, Georgia. But wow. that was what that was still what I said we're selling, and that's what we're going to present. And then we'll come in CAAs, and then we'll come. So that's your that's your answer, Luke, is because I, uh, I I I sold. I'm not sure I delivered on as well as I could have. Honestly, when I transitioned from college coaching to pro coaching. Part of the reason I did that, a small reason, but one of the reasons for sure was that I didn't feel like I was producing as a professional coach with the, with the pros as well as when I, because I had all that stuff going on with the college team all the time. And by then, by in the 2000s, and I've been there 17 years, so much, so many more steps you had to go through to be a successful uh, college coach. And it wasn't mm-hmm. a lot more meetings, a lot more dealing with assistant coaches, with HR, with you know, different athletes and, you know, e- each athlete could, could create, you know, hours and hours of time sucks for you by different, by different things. And, and, and uh, so it was a whole different atmosphere. You know, I left in 2007 uh, as compared to what it was when I started in 1990. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, I think one of the big things for me is just, is just that the, the international athlete, their goal is very clear. I mean, they're, they're federated, they're, they're raised with it. Their goals, you know, their federation sets it and it's long course swimming. It's not short course swimming. It's not in say swimming. You see better. If you want to be recruiting those guys, you better be selling them the Olympic dream, not the NCAA dream. I stopped swimming for Trinidad because of my college career. It, it, and that was not priority for you. And there's an illusion that you swim fancy double A's and some qualifying trials are in April, you know, Canada or what have you there's an illusion that that's all you guys care about. You guys being NCAA coaches and, and that's, that would inhibit anybody coming. Absolutely. Yeah. And, that, and that's what the, you know, that's what the, a lot of the federations tell their athletes. It's like, you know, you don't go because you're taking a huge risk. And honestly, right. I can't argue with that. I mean, with the amount of time improvement that's happened in short course swimming versus long course swimming, I'm sorry, you know, I, you know, the, 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 you, you got to have to convince me that, that short course yard swimming is really helping long course meters swimming. It isn't automatically happening for sure. It it may be happening in, in places, but it's not automatically not happening the same amount. Mm-hmm. Do you see long course meters swimming continuing to dominate? Uh, you know the what matters in terms of, of relevance and in, in sport history. I mean, like I just watched the Winter Olympic Games. That like half of it looks like the X Games. You know, so and and yet we were talking about how exciting short course swimming is because. You know, there it's explosive, and there's you know popping quick times, and I mean there's appeal to it, but it is sort of a different sport. Do you? Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? 
No, I think it's uh, it's 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 old fuddy dud swimming. I mean, I don't I, thinking. I don't think I, don't, I think we need to be open to to new concepts for swimming. I think short course swimming is much more exciting. I mean, I, again, the ISL probably short course meters is our perfect sweet spot. I mean, yards is a little bit too bouncy. You can you can bounce off a wall and carry the speed off the wall way too easily. Meters, you have to at least do one more cycle. You know, uh, maybe thirty-three. I love 30, training thirty-three meters. You know that, Brian. I love thirty-three meter training, like and uh, and and that's a that's almost a perfect pool. But we're not going to go to thirty-three meters. But but I think the the uh, the the question in terms of that kind of thinking is it's you know, and I I don't think the challenge of, of of our sport moving forward is just a challenge of NCA. I do think that's part of the NCA, and I think that's the coaches, the NCA committee, and I, and, I, and it has to do with swimming. We do control. We can request some changes be made, including a date, and be working toward that collectively as an NCA body, as mm-hmm. a swimming body, not the NCA. We don't have to rely on the NCA for that. Thank goodness, but then you have the the, the you know the the you know, FINA organization. You have the the IOC. You know, these are these are institute bureaucratic institutions that the easiest thing you can do is replicate what you did before. Right. So this is what we do. We walk out and and aid across. We take our equipment off. We take our headphones out of our ears. We get our names announced. We wave to everybody and then we step up and swim. How boring is that? I mean, my goodness. You know, where's the camera? Where's the where's the conversation? Where's the you know, where's the conflict? You know, where's the F1? Come on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we start doing that. We're going to make our sport a lot more interesting. But it's, you know, I think I do think the ISL was the first great attempt at this. And I don't even think the ISL went far enough. I told Constantine, I felt like he should have uh, been doing a lot more backstories and genuine sort of, uh, uh, you know, when things were coming up, have, have a camera back there and, you know, interview people as to why they're choosing this or that. And I think it, it could have brought some more. It, it can bring some more uh humanness to our sport because you know you can't you don't you know you don't meet better people than you do around swimming right they're they're just the best people there are i I mean i love the sport because of the people that are involved and uh and for the for the public to get to know who they are i think uh, only enhances our image and our brand and uh and our and our value you know our value at every level including our value of supporting athletes as professionals like the ISL was trying to do, but that was still a one man show. We haven't gotten to where it's a, it's a full uh, program yet. Yep. All right. Rapid fires to, to finish off. All right. What's the hardest race in swimming? The hardest race in swimming is a 200 backstroke. Long course? legs, 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 the legs just get, you got to fire the legs the whole way. Yeah. All right. Olympic gold or world record. Olympic gold. When you were at your best, who would win heads up, you or Catherine Burkoff in a hundred yard backstroke? Catherine Burkoff, unfortunately. She she kicked out. I didn't kick out one one kick. Uh do you have the best resume of any assistant coach of all time? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, I want to say no, dadgummit. Uh I, you can. I had Bob Grosseth. Honestly, I, I well I he, he I don't know. I I probably have the best resume on paper, but I'm, I'm sure I'm not the best assistant coach or have been. Dave didn't have to put up with me for a whole season. It was seven weeks. Come on. You know, if he had to put me through the whole season, I think I'd have been fired probably about two months in. <laughs> You're getting old now. We don't print resumes anymore. <laughs> You're correct. <laughs> what, was the, what was the most impressive swim from NCAAs? Men's or women? Uh, most impressive swim 
for me was uh, yeah, I I have to agree with uh, Bjorn Hugo. I mean, it could, just because I was in with him, and I, and I did not see that coming. Honestly, I did not see that coming. That was that's what was awesome about that swim. It was like when he did, I was like, that's Hugo. That's the guy that, that we've seen, and uh, it finally the beast came out. It sounds like he didn't even know that that was coming. That's the interesting part. So. Um, well, the, the conversation we had with him is he was swimming very controlled backstroke. And I said, dude, I sat in European championships when you won the 100 backstroke medal. I don't even medal or won, but he, 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 you're in a medal, at least 100 backstroke. You're an amazing backstroker. Why are you floating backstroke? <laughs> and so and not that that was the whole story of it, but his, his main story was he was he was uh, uh, uh yeah, you, I can't think right now. My wife just walked in the room. So <laughs> the, but the, the, uh, you know, when, when he ended up, when, when uh, Hugo ended up doing that, like when he started going on back, so he said, either he's going to do something amazing here. And I was down at the far end of the pool. I was being a good assistant coach and pulling stretch cords in the warm up pool during that swim. I wasn't in the box area. And, uh, and, and so I was, I was having fun with, uh, uh, just, just watching, uh, from afar. And when he did that in backstroke, I was like, oh, my gosh, this may go down right here. And then he throws in a 57 breaststroke. I don't know where that came from either, which which with four strokes per lap, as somebody pointed out, not long, not long ago in the media. But but it was a, it was a brilliant swim and, and, a, and a, you know, a swim in a moment. And honestly, it's probably his third or fourth, fifth best event. I'm not, I don't necessarily think the 400 is his best event. 200 is certainly a better event for him. He just doesn't kick out very well. You know, he's, he's, he's gonna, he should be a beast long course meter, 200 uh, mm-hmm. And you'll see him evolve in some other events that are going to be, uh, I, I think, over time, especially now with with Sean, with Sean Kelly over there and uh, now Ben's with over there too. I think you're going to see him as he collaborates with Spain and Berkeley together. Mm-hmm. Uh, some pretty fun things are going to happen with Hugo. Mm-hmm. All right, since you've coached so many elite sprinters, we'll finish with this one. Who's the greatest sprinter in history? Uh, greatest swimming sprinter in history is uh, Cesar Cielo. Hmm. Tell me why. Because he's held the record this long, and uh, he, did, he executed everything – uh, you know, when, when he's coaching, swimming with me, when he's swimming with Brett, when he's swimming with Brazil, he executed everything with 100% precision. He was the guy, uh, Dean Hutchinson pointed out once when he was there for a, a camp, and he was trying to get, he was trying to break a 15 meter record. You remember he said a 50 meter pool. He mm-hmm. would not leave the pool until mm-hmm. he broke this 15 meter record that somebody had broken his time. That's and true. he he stayed there for what, an hour and a half, breaking, trying to break the record. And I think he did break it before he left, but that's until his toes are bleeding. Just, yeah. Yeah. And that's the story people need to hear. You don't, you don't become a great sprinter by uh, all genetics, although you got a lot of genetics, but you know, he was a 50 point hunter freestyle when he came to us. He wasn't a superstar when he came to yeah. Auburn, but he had a great stroke. He has, he had a great mother and father that loved him. And he, so, so his, his performance wasn't based on, you know, his, all his, his self-identity wasn't based just on swimming. He was mm-hmm. a, uh, he was a solid young man. And he had that sort of Latin passion that sometimes it takes that passion to do those kind of things. So I'm going with him. <laughs> He's got some passion. Cool. Um, David, we could talk for hours, uh, mm-hmm. but we'll let you go. Appreciate your time. And um, yeah, we'll love to catch up with you again sometime soon. All right, Brian. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Luke. Okay. All appreciate right. you guys. Yep. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you're enjoying Social Kick, 
Tell your friends about it, and be sure to tell us what you liked by leaving a comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Social Kick, and you can find all of our content on our website,